0: good afternoon this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is authentic biochemistry podcast today is 19 October 2022 this is lecture number 65 in membrane biochemistry now remember that the NLRP3 inflammasome is a cytosolic complex and its formation is initiated by the nlrp3 the asc which is the adapter apoptosis associated speck-like protein containing a caspase activation and recruitment domain that's known as the card and that presents as a uh, proteinaceous scaffold you also have another protein called NIMA related kinase seven, and you have an effector pro one, which you know what that is, it's gonna be a convertase. Now, after a sterile injury, the NLRP3, I, I think I mentioned this before, but the reason we talk about sterile injury is when you introduce a pathogen you're going to be triggering the toll-like receptors. And there's various sub-routes for that interaction that can still lead to the NLRP3 inflammasome. It's just not the direct route when you do a sterile injury, like a mechanical injury. So after sterile injury, the NLRP3 exposes a specific domain. Uh, It's called the pyrin domain, or PYD. And it causes that pyrin domain to bind to the ASC, which then uses its CARD, remember that's its domain, to recruit the pro-Caspase-1. So the trigger is a self-cleavage, and it releases its active P20, it's a 20 kilodalton fragment, that now acts as the convertase to convert pro-interleukin-1-beta and pro-interleukin-18 to those mature pro-inflammatory isoforms that are secreted. Now, remember that you can have an inactive NLRP3 and when you have that, the protein generates a ring structure and it's held together by a series of leucine repeats. And that interaction of that ring structure in association with the leucine repeats shields the PYD domain, and therefore prevents any kind of uh, reaction and activation unless there is the stimulation, okay? this is how it suppresses itself. So there are a couple of other things to mention about this NLRP3 inflammasome. And maybe I can get to it later, but right now I think I, it's, I can leave you with that, okay? That was the last component of the lecture from uh, yesterday. Now, here's some background information. Paper was published in Nature Review of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in 2019. And it talked about a particular disease called PBC or primary biliary cholangitis. Now, this is a pro-inflammatory and a cholestatic liver disease, as the name suggests. PBC occurrence and its progression in etiology involve an immunogenetic environmental, essentially a a dialectical event ontological paradigm. Now, I'm bringing that long term in there because remember when we talked yesterday about the epistemology leading to the metaphysics of biochemistry, right? That prelude and how knowledge is developed in the biochemical systems has to do with using categorical logic and asking questions at the level of a hypothesis, how we go about discerning. whether or not the system is functioning at multiple levels of a premise of which you generate to describe the system, right? So this is how science was classically done when it first was uh, being um, developed, shall we say. And this was really started in the 18th century um, by people like Boyle. And the scientific method developed around this. Now, I have my own interpretation of it because I'm using 20th century and 21st century technology. So remember when we're talking about, remember yesterday I was talking about ingestion and I was talking about different ways that you take in nature to examine it. Now, typically we think about using vision, right? Did you see this? I mean, it's part of our vernacular, but a lot of the equipment that's used in a biochemistry laboratory, such as chromatography and electrophoresis and mass spectroscopy and various uh, different kinds of column chromatography, uh, such as LC, those instruments enhance our senses to be able to detect specific polypeptides, lipids, nucleic acids, carbohydrates in specific structures. Now, we all know this. Most of the audience here probably has a background in some laboratory uh, science. If not, um, I, really, I really would suggest that you get a chance to work in a laboratory. If you're already an MD, try to do a fellowship where you can work in a laboratory for a year. And if you're a student, obviously, you should be working in a laboratory if you're studying anything uh, related to um, molecular biology or pre-med. If you're already in medical school, you should be having lab courses. And if you're uh, post-medical school, you should have some access to laboratory procedures. So the reason I'm talking about that is I want you to be aware, aware of how research science is done. It's not simply you sit down, you read a couple of papers, you come up with, oh, uh, like some ideas and these ideas can then generate a hypothesis about, say, a specific disease uh, lesion. And then going through what the research papers already tell us about that lesion and already determining what kind of, say, pharmacotherapy is involved in regulating that pathophysiology moving onward just slightly and then developing a couple of experiments maybe at the cell level or at the um animal level all subclinical before you get into clinical trials and say you're working on something where it's nih funded um it's more than that your your logic the way that you carry out your um, increase in understanding of the system has to be hand in hand with the actual research paradigm. And unfortunately this gets separated because often you have a research leader that writes a grant and then people come in and work in that laboratory and they have very little intellectual input into how the research moves forward. That is something that needs to be corrected in my view uh, because Previously, research was done hand-in-hand with research leaders or the principal investigator and the people that worked in his or her laboratory. That's, for example, how when I went to graduate school, how it worked out. Um, But over the years, things are getting separated more and more because labs got larger. And the actual principal investigator may not even interact very often with his graduate students or postdocs or uh, fellows coming through through the medical school system. And that's not the way it should be done because the intellectual input should always be there. So let's go back to this PPC disease. Again, this is, this is going to get us into inflammasomes. There is a clinical manifestation of this bile acid induced inflammation and fibrosis. And what, you want to do when you're looking at the clinical papers and understand is to understand how the management of patient symptoms. Now that's, for example, pruritus is a goal reflected in the development of the therapy. Okay. So you're looking at an apical sodium dependent bile acid transporter inhibitor. You need to understand where that fits in in the disease etiology. So even if you're not studying inflammasome um, activation, you should be aware of the fact that that's front and center in this disease. And you just need to know where it is in terms of is it distal or proximal or continual for the progression of the disease itself, causing tissue damage and higher and higher morbidity. And sometimes it's a systemic failure in solid organs, like, for, for example, this disease can. But at the same time, understand that at the biochemical level, these interactions are happening in real time. Um, for example, the production of NLRP3 inflammasome, and then the, the, the utilization of the CARD domain to activate that system. And what we want to know when we're studying this disease even when we're using an inhibitor of of, say downstream, what's causing the inflammation like bile acid, what you wanna know is what that's doing to the inflammasome. And the only way you know that is if you understand the system and the only way you understand the system is to read the research science literature, right? You need to read it and you need to own it. You can't simply have uh, check marks next to uh, labels in your notebook saying that this this is an inhibitor of this particular interaction or this enzymatic activity uh, without knowing where that fits into the entire uh, disease paradigm. okay? So that's just that that's that's a good dialectical pursuit, taking the epistemological approach of understanding at the knowledge base and moving it into the metaphysics. By that, I mean is, what's really occurring, what's really there, the metaphysical edge of it, right? Okay, so this Frontiers in Immunology paper, this disease, PBC, and its associated responses in the immune element or involvement is with a protein called galactin-3. So galactin-3 is part of this PBC pathogenesis. So autoimmune cholangitis, in, in the murine model can be induced by injecting a bacterium. The particular bacterium they use is novoschwingobium, that's the genus. And the species that's used often in the laboratory, this is a mouse study, remember. The species is uh civarans, Okay. So Na is is the uh, genus species for the bacterium. Now this now understand. What's going on with this bacterium, there's an aromatic compound degrading system that the bacteria generates. And that's, it's part of the, part of how that functions is this bacterium is gram negative, non-spore forming, non-motile, also happens to be rod shaped, which also adds an element of the pathogenesis. Where you normally find this bacterium is not in in the human, but you find it in deep terrestrial subsurface sediments. Okay. Now, liver infiltrates of the mouse model of this bacterium, N. aromatosivirans. Okay. Liver infiltrates of N. aromatosivirans, infected mice, showed Elevated pro-inflammatory macrophages, those are the M1 type, also showed a higher level of infiltrating dendritic cells, natural killer cells, and natural killer T lymphocytes or cytotoxic T lymphocytes, and then certain T-effector cells. Now, here's another thing to understand. A galactin-3 deletion or a treatment with a galactin-3 inhibitor was shown to reduce the inflammatory mononuclear cell infiltrate, the one I just described to you. Now, here's where it fits into what we're talking about yesterday. It also reduces the expression of the NLRP3 inflammasome. Now, remember that the NLR proteins regulate the immune response to injury and to toxins or invasion by microorganisms, including pathogenic ones. And the reason those proteins do that is they engage components of the immune system. So you have an NLR protein called cryopyrin, okay? The the pyrin domain we talked about. And that particular protein recognizes bacterial particles. But that same protein will also bind to and react in an inflammatory issue downstream to such things as asbestos, silica, a gout association that is with uric acid crystals, and also a host of molecules that are generated at an injury site, which have to do with blood clotting. Okay, so you see the, the vast amount of signals that can induce now go to one terminal, and that terminal is the NLRP3 axis around the inflammasome. So they're using this gram-negative bacteria to um, interrogate the system in the mouse model. but And their, and their interest, of course, is this cholangitis, okay? Now, once activated, that cryopyrin molecule assembles itself with many other proteins into the structure known as the inflammasome, which we were describing in some detail yesterday. And it's called an inflammasome because it's gonna be involved in the process of, yeah, inflammation. So remember that inflammation happens when the immune system sends signaling molecules as well as more lymphocytes and leukocytes to the site of injury or perhaps if it's a tumor to the site of the tumor and if it's a pathogenic infection some of those neutrophils and macrophages are going to be involved in inhibiting pathogenesis and that's going to be downstream, all that's downstream from the inflammasome, okay? Now, the NLRP3 inflammasome activation involves two critical um, modes. One is priming and the other is activation. So priming is initiated by toll-like receptors. And what they will do if it's, now again, this is when a pathogen is involved. That is in, in a non-sterile system, right? Not a sterile system. Priming is initiated by toll-like receptors that can sense pathogen-associated molecular patterns or PAMPS. TLRs also would detect different TLR isoforms will detect the danger associated molecular patterns that are generated by the host. Those are called DAMPS, remember? The PAMPS and DAMPS I talked about uh, several times over lecture in the last year really and so those are all molecular patterns and they trigger the nuclear factor kappa light chain enhancer of activated b cells that's nf kappa b and that will be associated with inducing the nlrp3 and the pro-interleukin-1 beta transcription okay so nf kappa b is a transcription factor I want you to understand that all this is functioning simultaneously, and you will trigger different events such as this now involvement of the Tolec receptors. If you use a pathogen to trigger the inflammasome, this will not be following the same route. If you're using a non-sterile mechano damage, you understand that now all taken together mitochondria coordinate this process. So in addition to NF-kappa B activation, the TOLAC receptor engagement results in an interferon regulatory factor called IRF1, and that induces a protein called cytidine monophosphate kinase 2. That's CMP kinase 2, okay? So you know what that is. That's going to be a pyrimidine nucleotide-activated kinase, right, CMP kinase too. And there's also going to be a rate-limiting mitochondrial nucleotide kinase, which will be an isoform of the CMPK2. So you have a cytosolic version and a mitochondrial version, okay? And the mitochondrial version is normally involved in, okay, because remember the moonlighting effect of polypeptides, the initiation of mitochondrial DNA replication. So, before its compaction into nucleoids, newly synthesized mitochondrial DNA is potentially triggered along with calcium influx and potassium efflux, remember, through that VDAC pathway, right? And that will generate directly oxymitochondrial DNA. And when that occurs, those fragments of mitochondrial DNA that have been oxidized will be released into the cytosol. And they will also bind to the N-L-R-P-3, triggering the inflammasome assembly. Okay? So another target for cytosolic mitochondrial DNA that we also brought up yesterday is a DNA-sensing enzyme called cyclic GMP-AMP, or C-GAMP synthase. For short, it's called C-GAS. C-gas then leads to the activation of the stimulator of interferon genes. That's called sting. Remember I talked about the C-gas sting complex. Now, although NLRP3 shows a preference, okay, to trigger it, for 8 oxo guanine or 8-oxo-G containing DNA, any oxidant any oxygenated mitochondrial DNA will be processed to smaller fragments that will enter the cytosol, okay? So there's a preference for 8-oxo-G, but any fragments of mitochondrial DNA that have been essentially oxygenated because you're adding molecular oxygen to them will act as a signature to turn on NLRP3, so remember that oxy- mitochondrial DNA is processed into those fragments, the enter of the cytoplasm, they trigger the NLRP3 inflammasome according to the mechanism I explained to you. And then at the same time, those fragments of DNA from the mitochondria will activate sting by phosphorylating sting. That will then mediate a downstream or subsequent interferon production by non-apoptotic macrophages. Okay. So the same pathway also accounts for the release of circulating cell-free mitochondrial DNA. And that too becomes, as you might guess, a systemic inflammatory mediator. Okay, So... Let's bring back this biliary cirrhosis for a moment. So primary biliary cholangitis can lead to primary biliary cirrhosis. As characterized, now we're going into more detail of this, by a T-cell mediated destruction of the bile duct, epithelial cells, that line the small intrahepatic bile duct. So the host targets of activated T-lymphocytes are indeed the dihydrolipoamide acetyltransferase components, okay, of the two oxoacid dehydrogenases. So those are enzymes like pyruvate dehydrogenase. It's a host target of activated T lymphocytes or a damp, right? Now there's data that suggests there is a microorganism that initiates the onset of it. And that microorganism is the one I just told you about, the novoshvangobium. Remember it's, it's gram negative. It's strictly aerobic, found everywhere, but mostly in sediments, okay? Now, why would this happen? Well, because of mimicry, there's a protein in that bacterium called PDCE2. That would be pyruvate decarboxylase enzyme 2 of the PDH complex, which is going to have as its derivative the dihydrolipoamide acetyltransferase, which is actually a 2-oxoacid dehydrogenase. You understand, right? Okay. I'm sure you are starting to put this together. So this bacterium will subvert self-tolerance and it'll happen in two ways by this molecular mimicry due to subclinical infection, which you can get simply from being exposed to this bacterium because of sediment in, say the water system. Okay. And also by me- metabolism xenobiotics that are present in the environment. There's two different ways of getting this subversion of self tolerance because you're going to make the protein that's going to trigger the NLRP3 inflammasome. Okay, by metabolizing xenobiotic. <laughs> so back in 2004, so this is where the this is where the origin of all this research comes from. So I'm talking about about generating a a prolegomena or an induction of a metaphysical understanding of your system. You have to go back in the literature, but you have to go back discreetly, not darkly and with unknowns, like let's just throw words into a search engine. You have to understand the system to move back to where the earlier work was done. And you have to know what work is necessary to understand how this mechanism functions when you're studying something in 2022 that is directly related to this inflammasome triggering, okay? That's the point I'm trying to make you here. That's why I'm bringing all this back. All right, so what do I want to say? Okay, one of the things about gram-negative bacteria doesn't have LPS. So rather than a lipopolysaccharide, it has glycosphingolipid, and you know that glycosphingolipids are typically membrane components of eukaryotic cells. So when bacteria make these lipids, they're called sphingans, okay? That would be in the literature. Earlier, bacterial genetics, bacterial, um, basically, um, biology, right? Microbiology. So these sphingans may play an important Uh, role in the colonization of these bacteria okay and indeed um, they it also may relate to how this bacterium can uh, invade the human system right now since ceramide can be generated from sphingolipids and that lipid is linked to inflammation we've talked about many times and also apoptosis right? And tissue degeneration, therefore, it could be that this lipid on this gram negative bacterium that's associated with primary biliary cirrhosis could be the lipid that's signaling the initial phase of the disease. Now, that comes from me reading these earlier papers. Now, this isn't a component of the NLRP3 inflammasome. At least it's not one that we're talking about yet. But it's an earlier phase of the infection state. But still, you need to know this because you need to understand about molecular mimicry and about the invasion of a microbe into the uh, host system that can trigger a response that turns into a full-blown inflammation. Utilizing the downstream mechanisms of the NLRP3 card domain, inflammasome generating interleukin-1 beta and interleukin-18 and a full pro-inflammatory response. Okay? All right. So I'm going to stop there. It's uh, time to say um, bye for now.